Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. And uh, a couple of stories here that I just want to put on your radar, and then I'll pick up your phone calls. A couple of things to flag for you. First of all, the question, is Fox News the greatest cancer on American democracy? And I'd add, if so, what do we do about it? I mean, are you using parental controls to lock Fox News out on your, on your grandparents' uh, TV set? <laughs> oh, my. Number two. We've got a, a crazy alert to end all crazy alerts. Steve Bannon has just, remember earlier I was talking about grifters, the Republican Party, the GOP has basically been a giant grift ever since 1981, you know, when Reagan came to power and just really began the grift that, you know, we see today so visibly all around us. It's not just in politics that you see these grifts, these grifters. You also see them in the media. And Alex Jones has been running this grift for a long time, you know, finding things to get hysterical about and saying, well, nine years ago, Sandy Hook happened and Alex Jones was out there going, oh, no, it's, it's, uh, they're, they're crisis actors. It's just fake. And of course, he, he got that one bit him in the butt pretty badly, but, uh, you know, legally speaking. But now Steve Bannon is peddling fear and hysteria over on his podcast. Elon Musk has a company called Neuralink. And they are developing a technology that would allow the brainstem to route its signals around damaged parts of the spinal cord for people who have spinal cord injuries so that paraplegics, quadriplegics, whatnot, can walk again or move, at least have some motion. And it involves putting some wires and a chip in a person's brain. And that was enough, apparently, for Steve Bannon. For all the stuff he works on, the batteries, Tesla, and all that, the Neuralink is by far, by far the most dangerous. Bannon warned his listeners. He said uh, he's hurtling towards that. He's already said by next fall, the fall of 2020, before you vote in the 22 election, he's going to have a chip in a human's brain. And that, ladies and gentlemen, that is hurtling toward a singularity. <sighs> Amazing. This is from Raw Story. This is their headline by Tom uh, Bagioni. Trump officials hired under suspicious circumstances still hold key positions in Merrick Garland's Department of Justice. 
Now, this is interesting, and we've speculated about this. I've speculated about this on the air. Many of you have called in and wondered about this out loud. Now, apparently, we know. This is from the Revolving Door Project uh, in combination with the American Prospect, the publication. Two officials who were inserted into the Department of Justice during Trump's administration, quote, under suspicious circumstances, end quote, still hold key positions under Merrick Garland. The first is a guy named Alexander Haas. He is the current director of the DOJ's Civil Division's Federal Programs Branch. And the second is a guy named Curtis Gannon, who is currently serving in the career position of Deputy Solicitor General. Haas was initially hired as a U.S. attorney in the DOJ and then was suddenly promoted. You know, bring him in and then push him up to the top. And he spearheaded cases near and dear to the Trump administration's heart, including defending, quote, the Trump administration in a case challenging the federal government's refusal to allow a 17-year-old ICE detainee access to an abortion. In 2020, Haas defended the Trump administration's efforts to truncate the census. He also put his name to a Justice Department complaint against Melania Trump's former advisor, Stephanie Winston Wolkoff, for publishing her tell-all memoir. As to Gannon, the other person, he has led the, legal, the Office of Legal Counsel where he defended Trump's refugee ban. Then he moved over to the Solicitor General's office where he argued that uh, before the Supreme Court that Nestle can't be held liable for relying on child slavery. And then again before the Supreme Court, he argued that Puerto Ricans can be denied Social Security benefits, which, by the way, is a position that Joe Biden opposes. What are these people... Mr. Haas and Mr. Gannon, what the hell are they doing in the Department of Justice? What is going on with this? This is not good stuff. Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's on your mind today? Hey, not too much, Tom. You know, I just want to respectfully disagree with you a little bit on this liberal renaissance. I agree with the regime philosophy. And also, there was a guy who did not want to insult Trump voters. He wanted to be very respectful. But what he said was... Trump voters love the America that they recognize, and he left it at that. Right, which is white people and, saying that they want white America. Yes. and We know that that's the principal animating force behind Trump voters right now. Every, you know, there's been multiple studies on this. It was also apparently the principal animating vote behind the January 6th attack. Race. Yes. Yes, but they are very uh, uh, passionate, and they love that America that they recognize. And here's the problem. So do, uh, you talked a little bit about it with Judd Legum, uh, so do the CEOs of America. And, and, and it's not like, um, you remember the, the, the days of Vanderbilt and Rockefeller and, and all those uh, industrialists of, of, you know, industrialized America. I remember reading about money. them, yeah. Well, sure, sure, sure. And, and there was a story about Vanderbilt went down to a had a had a, a mine in in Bisbee, Arizona, and he sent uh, strike busters from New York to disappear a bunch of them. Well, that's horrible, right? Of course, that's horrible. But at the end of the day, Vanderbilt was uh, of his age. He was an American. He had no choice. These CEOs now, they seem much more benevolent, but I, I caution you, Tom, they are not. They are not. Oh, they're totally motivated by money. I agree. And, and, and I think that when, they saw, when the Supreme Court adopted the, the whole Citizens United position, 
that you know any any billionaire or any corporation can bribe any politician under pretty much any circumstances and also can rig you know things like statewide referendums when that happened it was an open invitation to sociopaths to get into politics and that's now the republican party um, whether they're going to, to prevail dave i think is still an open debate but thanks for raising the question tim in aloha oregon hey tim what's on your mind yeah, I put things in perspective because I've been watching your show this morning. There's a million topics you can talk about, but a real, real key element to these, the, the, the headlines of the news right now are all these tornadoes that went through right. the, uh, the Midwest. Which is now. global warming. Well, yeah, that's the point I'm coming to. What they should be doing, you get together some middle-aged voters in those areas, and the first question they should ask them is, are you a registered Republican, and did you vote for Trump? And then if they said, yeah, I'd say, well, what, what's surrounding is exactly what you're voting for, because they've been doing that for generations. And putting that in historical context, you can... The uh, words from Carter back in the era, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of people don't understand. They passed a $1.7 billion cleanup fund when he was president, which did made, made some did some good. And then, of course, he put solar panels on the White House, which was the first thing Reagan took down when he got into office. So where do you think we'd be if we pursued the, the uh, that Carter ideology for the last 50 years? Do you think we'd be in a little better position right I now? I think we'd be in a hell of a lot better position, and, and that, I think we'd be amazing. leading and the people, world. And, and by the way, when Jimmy Carter was saying all that stuff, we made all those things in America, 100% of them. Right, exactly. We could have started from scratch, and the world would be a definitely a better place. It's scary, but that's the Republican ideology, you know. And that's what they, you know, the the, the God's gun and gay routine is just as, as prevalent as it ever was. And, yeah. and you have a, a bunch of people who don't understand, can't put things in historical context, and where you're going to end up, where we are now. I, I am with you, Jim, uh, Tim. Tim, thank you, thank you very much yeah. for the call, Sean. If you can turn on the 360, I'll, I'll just play that uh, Jimmy Carter clip for anybody oh. who did, didn't know, uh, you know, doesn't know what we were talking about. First of all, this I've got this marked here as Carter and Bush, and I, uh, let me see what this is. I don't think that George W. Bush won the election uh, in 2000 against Al Gore because I, th I think that he probably lost Florida and also that nationwide. Oh, interesting. That's from an interview that I did with Jimmy Carter. But anyhow, here's his energy clips. This is from his speech in 1978, as I recall. Uh, might have been 1979, but it was uh, uh, Jimmy Carter. The energy crisis is real. It is worldwide. It is a clear and present danger to our nation. These are facts, and we simply must face them. What I have to say to you now about energy is simple and vitally important. Point one, I am tonight setting a clear goal for the energy policy of the United States. Beginning this moment, this nation will never use more foreign oil than we did in 1977. Never. Yeah, and think about that with Kentucky. Moreover, I will soon submit legislation to Congress calling for the creation of this nation's first solar bank, which will help us achieve the crucial goal of 20% of our energy coming from solar power by the year 2000. Yeah. Can you imagine where we'd be if that, had, if that had happened? James in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, James, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Happy holidays Thank to you. everybody. Back at you. Thank you. I, I, I wanted to uh, bring up a couple points here. Uh, uh, you know, our, our Pick tactics, one, please. Uh, well, you know, here the Republicans, uh, are, they're... they're trying voter suppression. They want to maintain a peon class. They're controlling all assets is what they want to do. They're restricting our education is what they want to do. 
and they want to control our bodies, Tom. And I want to go on and on, but this is communism, Tom. Why can't we use the word communism? You know, fascist, that's being really brave, calling them fascist. But they're calling us everything under the sun. These are facts. They want voter suppression. They want to maintain a slave class. They want controlling assets. They, they, want, they don't want education. This is communism, Tom. Why doesn't somebody bring this out? And it broke my heart to watch the Democrats walk their papers across to, to, the, to the Senate, knowing that, that it was just going to give Donald Trump a victory, and we could have hung that up in court over his head for his whole term, and it would have given him much less power, and I think things would be different now. Yeah, um, I, I get what you're saying, James. You, I, what I would say is that you know, communism is more an economic system than a political system, and when it was put into place as a political system in, in uh, the Soviet Union, in communist China, in Vietnam, in Cuba, it turned into an authoritarian political system. Um, communism well, itself. What you call it when and, they want to restrict our education and but, control and, our and bodies. And they're calling us socialists. So I, I, I right, you know, right. I think trying to call Republicans communists uh, would be, you know, like, you know, I, you're rubber, I'm glue, accurate, or whatever. Accurate. No, they're they're authoritarians. They're not communists. They're they're the opposite of communists. They they well, they, communi they hold to a, to an ideology of raw naked capitalism. Um, you know, unrestrained, uh, so-called free runaway, market. Runaway, runaway. I haven't heard the word runaway capitalism in a long time because we know it, re it leads to uh, strictly... Yeah, you can, you can try that. I, you know, I get it. We need to be pushing back and, 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 and identifying what they're doing. And what they're doing is authoritarianism. And, and as a political system, it is called fascism. But as, as a behavior, it's called authoritarianism. Thank you for the call. Dave in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hey, Dave, what's up? Hi, I just wanted to call in because I, I heard China mentioned earlier, and um, I didn't think it would ever come true, but um, Professor uh, W. Deming, uh, before his death in 1993, he basically said all along that, um, and I'm not talking about the economics or, or political, that he said that um, outsourcing would always be, in the long run, more, more costly than insourcing. And I wanted to get your hear your. Didn't opinion. Deming invent the whole just-in-time delivery system that went, you know, that the Japanese embraced in the nineties? Yes, but there's two parts to that. That that's uh, the Japanese word called that, Jakota. Mm -hmm. One is um, a pull system, and then the other is actual management. Right. So it works in certain. I'm sorry to get thrown off here. No, that's yeah. okay. That's okay, Dave. Um, I was just trying to identify who Deming was. I had yeah, that, he, was that part of, he was part of that. Um, he, was, he was one of those management consultants that was just being lauded all around the world and was actually his, he was traveling to, to Japan a lot and putting his his, his ideas into he's practice. He's considered the father of the Japanese economy. There you go. But okay. long, long story short, he said that any organization that pursues short-term costs will, will eventually lose money over the long term. And I think the supply chains are indicative of that. I mean, I heard on the news that uh, Wang is investing $50 billion in Texas now to build uh, semiconductor chips there. I just wanted to... I, Wang I mean, is, I, still, I is still in business? I don't think it's the same Wang as in the uh, 80s. I think okay. it was different. Okay. I think it's a different semiconductor. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are semiconductors investing more money in the United States. Right. Not that, not as much as to reverse the whole uh, outsourcing over the last 30 years. But I, I'm just thinking that was the pandemic and now the bottlenecks um, indicative of 
the, you know, chickens coming home to roost and proving him right? That's the question. I think you're absolutely right, Dave. Um, I, 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 I would agree. And I've been singing that song for a long time. I wrote a book about it in 2010, Rebooting the American Dream, which was, you know, uh, we need to stop outsourcing. We need to be, America needs to be self-sufficient. And every war we've ever fought tells you why that's important. Dave, thank you for the call. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com Hartman, with two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com Hartman, with two N's, or enter the code Hartman, with two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. So Germany has a brand new uh, chancellor, Olaf Scholz, and he's got a brand new problem in the province of sort of state of Saxony, probably one of the most conservative, if not the most conservative, I'd put it right up there with Bavaria in Germany. Also the most unvaccinated, there is a plot to kill politicians who are calling for vaccine mandates. These are anti-vax, anti-science freaks who are now planning murder. Where does this stuff come from? What do we do about it? How do we respond to it? Lee McIntyre is on the line with us. Uh, Lee is a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University, an instructor in ethics at Harvard Extension School, formerly executive director at Institute of Qualitative Social Science at Harvard University, the author of latest uh, 11 books, his latest, How to Talk to a Science Denier. Conversations with Flat Earthers, Climate Deniers, and Others Who Defy Reason. Lee, welcome to the program. I loved your uh, conversation with the, uh, the Flat Earth guy where you were describing the, uh, the artifacts of vision from, you know, heat inversions and things. Um, uh, how, uh, well, first of all, how prevalent is science denial 
in our society. And, and also, I was boggled by your description of how South Africa was ravaged by AIDS because their president became a science denier. How prevalent is this in our country? How prevalent is, is this around the world? And what's the cultural and psychological basis of these kinds of uh, this kind of thinking? I'm not sure that there are statistics on how prevalent it is. My feeling is that it's been getting worse over the last several years because it's no longer just about science denial, but about reality denial, because the folks uh, had so much success with uh, you know, all of the, the science denial programs that it, you know, it, it's now metastasized to these uh, other areas. There, there was some measurement a few years back, uh, kind of a worldwide survey in which they found that, you know, of course, the United States is number one for uh, climate denial. Um, and, you know, we were not number one for all areas of science denial. I think Turkey had its beat uh, for uh, evolution denial. But this seems to be something that is happening uh, with a good, de good degree of frequency in the United States. And there's a reason for that. It's because we're being targeted with disinformation. And to, now I, I know with regard to climate denialism, we were targeted for, for decades by big fossil fuel companies and their front men and, 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 right. and, you know, and fossil fuel billionaires. Um, that seems to be on the decline. Are, who else is targeting us with misinformation and about what? Well, it, it depends on the area. Um, I heard you say in the, in the intro, you're talking about people who are anti-science. Of course, nobody would really characterize themselves that way, or even as a denier, they tend to think of themselves as more scientific than the scientists. But I would say that there are very few people actually who are anti-science. Uh, science deniers tend to be selective. They uh, really only object to those scientific areas that tread on some sacred beliefs that they have, maybe some ideological belief uh, around vaccines, around the shape of the earth, um, you know, around COVID. And then uh, the information gets weaponized and then they know what the talking points are and they know how to push back. But they're, they're usually not anti-science, you know, just uh, per se. I, I would say the most dangerous areas of science denial right now are, of course, COVID denial and climate denial. Science denial has been around for a long time, and it can kill. There were 300,000 deaths in South Africa a few years back because President Mbeke and his health minister, Zimang, insisted that AZT was part of a Western plot and could be that HIV AIDS could be treated with garlic and lemon juice. When disinformation is put in the hands of somebody like that who's influential, it can kill hundreds of thousands of people. So Donald Trump was promoting science denialism with regard to climate change, I believe probably still continues to. We've yeah. got this movement in the United States denying the reality that COVID, in fact, I, just a couple of days ago, I was talking with a, an old friend of mine from college, the wife of an old friend. He just had a heart attack. And I'm like, what happened? And oh, he got pneumonia and then he had a heart attack. And I'm like, whoa, that sounds like a COVID scenario. And she's like, oh, we don't believe in COVID. Those vaccines, they can kill you. You don't want to, you don't want to. And I'm like, oh, my God. And this is somebody that known for 50 years. Let me ask the question of your book, the title of your book. How do you talk to a science denier? It's hard because you have to face the fact when you're going into the conversation that their beliefs are not probably based on facts and evidence. So you can't talk to them, at least initially, about facts and evidence. I mean, if you think about it, how could their views be based on facts and evidence, right? But it's very hard because in these conversations, maybe folks, uh, I know I felt this in talking to flat earthers, 
you have this feeling that you just you want to debunk them on the spot, drop the mic. But if you do that, you just alienate them, and there's really no way to have any sort of a satisfying conversation. I'd say the most important thing to know about such talks is that you have to approach the person with patience and respect, respect for them as a person, even if not their ideas, and you have to listen. Because really, if you think about it, science denial is not just about doubt, it's about distrust. The person has been taught not to trust people on the other team. And if they don't trust you, facts are not going to win the day. So, you know, talk to them face to face and try to win their trust. And then maybe over time, they'll listen to the facts. Yeah, it seems like a, a good strategy. I'm not sure it worked for me, you know, a couple of days ago when I had this phone conversation. Although I did, you know, I said, you know, you're being lied to. I mean, the, the, there are people who are, that doesn't work. It didn't seem to work. It might work if you could trace back the source of the lie. I can do that for a very interesting uh, COVID myth. Because I have people in my life, too, who say things like, well, you know, COVID uh, isn't real or the vaccines can kill you or, you know, it's all being hyped up, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, one of the most virulent myths for a long time, and I, I think still a lot of people believe it, is this idea that there would be microchips in the vaccine. Well, I traced that back to see where it came from. Turns out it came from Russian intelligence. The uh, Russian intelligence service pumped it out to the trolls who then it ended up on something called the Oriental Review, which is an English language journal that's controlled by the Russian government. And they made this claim in this article back in April 2020. Now, think about that. How far were we into the pandemic? We didn't even have any vaccines. They said that any future vaccines would have microchips in them, courtesy of Bill Gates, who had taken out patent number 060606 on this biometric technology. Then at the bottom of the story, share on Facebook, share on Twitter. By the following month, 44% of Republicans believed that that was true. Whoa. Now, that straight-up lie, disinformation, that had an uptake to, you know, millions and millions of Americans within a month. And that happens to us on many different scientific topics, on climate change, on, uh, on COVID, on anti-vax before COVID. I, I can never figure out where flat earth comes from. I don't think that, that that's a, a, a disinformation campaign. That one might just be misinformation, you know, a mistake. But the disinformation, a lot of it comes from foreign intelligence. How do, uh, which raises an interesting question. I mean, how do flat earthers survive as flat earthers unless it's, I mean, back in the 1970s, I was in Greenwich Village and a, a, a fellow who was kind of a local down there made the comment to myself and my best friend that the pigeons are all robots. You've never seen baby pigeons. You've never seen dead pigeons. They're robots from the planet Xenu, and they're spying on us. And that's why whenever there's meetings of famous people, uh, there's lots of pigeons. Now, he was, this was tongue-in-cheek. I mean, this, this guy was kind of a performance artist. And yeah. I've turned it into a running joke on this show for yeah. 18 years now. But there's, there's now this guy with this birds aren't real thing. You know, it's become a Gen Z thing, number one. But I think everybody, you know, everybody realizes this is tongue in cheek. How do the flat earthers who are not tongue in cheek maintain right. their belief? If you could just take a, an airplane and fly, you know, five miles, as soon as you get up, you know, a couple thousand feet, you could see the curvature of the earth. 
Well, the flat earthers are not kidding. And I know because I, I flew out to Denver in uh, November 2018 and went to their the Flat Earth International Conference where there were 650 of them. And my friends had told me, oh, they're not serious. They're just joking around. They're not joking around. Here's a, uh, something interesting. A lot of them flew there. Now, so you'd ask, I mean, you just asked the question, how could they um, – uh, you know, think that after they've gotten up in a plane. It's actually, you can't see the curvature of the Earth at 30,000 feet. Maybe you're looking out the window, you think you can. You really have to get up more like 50 or 60,000 uh. feet uh, in order to see it. But, I mean, you, you raise a solid point, right? Because aren't there experiments, aren't there things that, you know, scientists can show us to, you know, make it clear that the Earth is actually flat? Flat Earth is the reason I went. It's not because they were the most dangerous science deniers, but because in some sense they were the worst, right? Because how could you imagine somebody in this day and age to think that the Earth is flat? Okay. But they reason in the same way that all other science deniers reason, and so I wanted to see if I could learn how to talk to them. The really interesting, the fascinating thing about flat Earth is that they think that the Earth is flat, that there is that Antarctica is not a continent, it's an ice wall spread out around the perimeter of the Earth, that there's a dome over the top, and so we've never been to the moon. Now, so, you know, immediately tempting, you walk into that room and you want to push back with evidence. What about the pictures from NASA? What about a ship going over the horizon, hold that, you know, goes hold down and disappears hull first? You know, what about Newton? Uh, you know, what about all of these things that you can bring up? They've read it all, they've heard it all, and they've got a script that they will use to push back. You can find a lot of this on YouTube if you want to look, but be careful <laughs> because um, once you watch one of those videos, they'll send you 20 more. Amazing. But what happens is people watch these videos, they can't answer the questions, and they get sucked in, and then they eventually show up to these conventions. And you have to talk to them not about facts, but about why they believe the fact. Amazing the stuff. Amazing stuff. You can read all about it in Lee McIntyre's new book, How to Talk to a Science Denier, Conversations with Flat Earthers, Climate Deniers, and Others Who Defy Reason. LeeMcIntyreBooks.com or Lee McIntyre on, uh, Lee C. McIntyre on Twitter. Lee, thanks a lot. It's great talking with you. Thank you very much. My pleasure. News, the greatest cancer on American democracy. That metaphor, that phrase was from Kevin Rudd, the former Australian prime minister. I've mentioned this a few times on the air, but I've never written about it. So I was really excited yesterday afternoon when, when I got home and, and Louise and I were talking about what should we you know, make tomorrow morning's daily rant about. I, I was like, I want to highlight this piece. A couple of years ago in the Sydney Morning Herald, which is sort of the New York Times of Australia, Kevin Rudd, who was the former prime minister of Australia, called out Rupert Murdoch. The title of his article is something to the effect of Rupert Murdoch is the cancer on Australian democracy. He said in his article that Murdoch is, quote, the greatest cancer on the Australian democracy. The uncomfortable truth, Rudd says, is since the coup of June 2010, and this was a coup within his own party that Murdoch helped happen, Australian politics has become vicious, toxic, and unstable. The core question is why. Gee, does that sound familiar to you? 
He calls out a bunch of Australian politicians, you know, their versions of Jim Jordan and Marjorie Trader Greene. And then he goes on to say, Murdoch owns two thirds of our country's print media. Murdoch is not just a news organization. Murdoch operates as a political party acting in pursuit of clearly defined commercial interests in addition to his far right ideological viewpoint, worldview. He goes on to say, in the United States, Murdoch's Fox News is the political echo chamber for the far right, which enabled the Tea Party and then the Trump Party to stage a hostile takeover of the Republican Party. And then he goes on to say, in Australia, as in America, Murdoch has campaigned for decades in support of tax cuts for the wealthy, killing action on climate change, and destroying anything approaching multiculturalism. Given Murdoch's impact on the future of democracy, it's time to revisit it, says Kevin Rudd about Australia. He's calling for a national royal commission to investigate Rupert Murdoch and his family's impact on Australian politics and maybe do something about it. Now, uh, they don't have the First Amendment there. It, it's pretty hard to do anything about a news organization here. But what I'm asking, the question I'm asking is, number one, should Fox News be on military bases all over the world? Number two, should Fox News have representatives in the White House asking Jen Psaki questions? I get it. The, you know, Peter Ducey progeny of Ducey of Fox and Friends keeps asking these just pathetically stupid gotcha questions that would sound really smart on Fox News, but they're stupid questions. And, and Jen Psaki just like takes him apart every time he does it. And it makes great YouTube videos and people on Twitter love it. But I'm saying, why is he even there? This is not a news organization, Fox so-called news. It's a propaganda outlet. It's a propaganda outlet owned by a foreign family. Yeah, I get it. Murdoch eventually got U.S. citizenship, but still, and his uh, son Lachlan, who is now theoretically in charge of the whole thing, is, uh, I believe, is mostly living in Australia. But as Kevin Rudd, the former prime minister of Australia, wrote over on the Sydney Morning Herald, he says, Murdoch is a political bully and a thug who for many years has hired bullies as editors. The message to Australian politicians is clear. Either toe the line on what Murdoch wants or he kills you politically. This has produced a cowering, fearful political culture across the country, writes the former Australian prime minister. I know dozens of politicians, he writes, business leaders, academics and journalists, both left and right, too frightened to take Murdoch on because they fear the repercussions for them personally. They've seen what happens to people who have challenged Murdoch's interests as Murdoch then sets out to destroy them. He goes on to say, and this, I mean, this is just mind boggling. This is from Steve Schmidt. Steve Schmidt then weighs in about Rupert Murdoch. Steve Schmidt, who ran the John McCain campaign in 2008, who ran the George Bush re-election campaign in 2004. Steve Schmidt, Schmidt, no shrinking violet and no liberal. Quote, Rupert Murdoch's lie machine is directly responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Americans, the poisoning of our democracy, and the stoking of a cold civil war. There's ne never been anything like it, and it is beyond terrible for our country. Bar none, Rupert Murdoch is the worst and most dangerous immigrant to ever arrive on American soil. There are no words for the awfulness of his cancerous network. That's, you know, a quote from Steve Schmidt, the guy who brought you uh, John McCain as president, you know, for president and, and, uh, and actually helped George W. Bush win an election where he actually got the majority of the vote. He lost the popular vote in 2000. The Supreme Court put him on the, in the White House. But in 2004, he actually got a majority of votes. And it was because of Steve Schmidt, <laughs> to a large extent. The one last real news guy over at Fox so-called news, Chris Wallace, has just jumped ship to go to CNN. So if I'm saying if our media and body politic are infected, using Rudd's metaphor, with cancer, 
It's time to isolate it so it can't further harm our democracy. And by extension, you know, as America goes down in flames, so do other democracies around the world. So by extension, all the democracies of the earth, we have a responsibility to the other countries of the planet as well. So what do you think? Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Picking up your phone calls, Janine in Middleton, Wisconsin. Hey, Janine, what's on your mind today? What I wanted to share with you is that as I listened to you guys talk today, the thing that came to mind for me is that you were discussing belief systems and also how communities are formed or destroyed. Okay. And uh, there, was a, there was an author in our past, his name was Scott Peck, that wrote about this kind I of stuff. I remember him, M. Scott Peck, yes. People yes, with a Lie, in and fact, was one of his, his most famous book. Well, I just am familiar with another one, but I, I have all these books right now. And anyhow, uh -huh. the different drummer goes into a lot of discussion of the stuff you've been talking about. And what I want to emphasize here is that he reviews the stages that one goes through when they're forming their belief system. Mm -hmm. You know, you start out with that innocent thing, and then you go to, ooh, fear kind of deal. Then you're into the power, I know everything. And then, of course, you go through other stages as well. And what I wanted to emphasize, as he pointed out in his books, is it's real easy for one person that's in stage one to talk with another person that's at stage one. And equally so, somebody that's at stage one can also talk with somebody at stage two. What gets really tricky, though, is when you're at stage one and somebody else is at stage six, and then the worlds are just too different. Your perspectives are so non-compatible that the, the communication system breaks down. Right. And so that's what I want to emphasize, you know, for people is to understand that people are at different stages, and what we need to do is come to understand what stage they're at. Are they at the innocent? They don't know. Or are they at the fear stage? You know, and so therefore, you know, we have to approach different people at different stages, depending upon 
both where you're at and they're at. Yeah, I think one of the things that's that's really uh, uh, kind of sad and, and also enlightening about this, Jeannie, you look at all these people who are being um, convicted and uh, only about half of them are getting a jail time, but you know, they're getting nailed legally for showing up at the Capitol. And it seems that the major response of, of these folks has been, I was taken advantage of, I was snookered, I was, I was you know, but it's uh, by Donald Trump. But it's taking the, the, the power of the legal system coming down on them with this giant fush, foot that crushes people to cause them to reevaluate the, the belief system that they adopted, that they acquired from this professional grifter, you know, Trump, this guy who spent his whole life as a grifter. And unfortunately, it's been true my entire lifetime that there are people that take advantage or exploit a situation. Yeah. And, but I really want to emphasize that you emphasize to others as well, is there's belief systems, not just in religion, but in other aspects of our life, you know, political, you know, like uh, I don't I don't recall anybody really talking to me about a political belief system. I mean, we talk about Republicans, and Democrats, but to me, that isn't what I'm talking about. I'm talking about more as it relates to how government is run and how economic systems are Oh, this is, this is the foundation. I wrote a book called Screwed back in 2005, and this is the foundation of that. Yeah, well, the, you know, the, the, I start out that book by talking about the different worldviews of Hobbes and Rousseau, you know, of, or Hobbes and Locke, actually, in that book I'm talking about. And, you know, how Hobbes believed that people are intrinsically evil and therefore you need uh, what Hobbes referred to as the iron fist of church or state to restrain yep. human behavior. Uh, and Locke, on the other hand, believed that people are intrinsically good and therefore we can, you know, come together. There are some bad apples among us, but basically we can come together and govern ourselves and that is the those those two worldviews are the core foundations of the conservative worldview and the liberal worldview and we want to keep sharing that with other people so that they understand because i know what i do every day now is i have a piece of paper and a pen and when somebody mentions a book i haven't heard about i write it down real quick because that's another opportunity for me to expand my understanding of the world that I'm living in. Yeah, and so I, I mean, that's all I really wanted to share with you is just the idea keep, I mean, obviously I have met you in person, but I, I can't emphasize how important it is for people to understand that there's more people out there that want to come together. We just have to learn how to talk with one another in a way that we break down these barriers of these people that are trying to exploit us. Yeah, I'm with you. Jeannie, thank you. Very, very, very well said. Thank you very much. Doug in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Doug. Thanks for listening. What's on your mind today? One, I have a brother. He happens to be in Nashville, Tennessee, and we have very different worldviews. I'm a, I'm a progressive Democrat in Portland. He's a conservative evangelical Christian in Nashville. So you can imagine the conversations we try to have. Um, and he's a denier about all of it and a believer in ivermectin. And just going to your point earlier, you know, I, I tried very to be very rational and patient, a couple of emails and texts between us, and immediately it just became nonsensical. And I, it dawned on me after just a few minutes or, or a few of these communications that he was really going from a script. He had certain talking points, and I'm almost certain they all came from his church and Fox News. Yeah, yeah. I, um, it was just it was very discouraging and, and, and upsetting. It, it stays with me. The, were you able, you, apparently, if, if you're using that kind of language right now, you weren't able to break through with your brother. 
Not, not at all. And, and we've been on tenuous grounds for years. And uh, because my son is going to get married soon, it brought back this idea that maybe we could build a bridge. And I was trying. Right. And it was really upsetting. Um, one other comment I have for you about this conversation, and this is just a point of interest. I happen to have a friend who's a Ph.D. in public health. And he works on the marketing side at his university. He teaches some classes. Mm. He helps promote their program. And he tries to get the word about, out about vaccines. His own wife is a conspiracy kind of person. She's been that way for years. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't believe in the vaccine. So I can only imagine the conversations they have in their house. Wow. It's like uh, James Carville and Mary Matlin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I could never it, figure that you know, one out. Yeah, me too. Me too. I, I just try to have compassion for my brother and just for myself and for all of us who are going through these just disturbing and crazy times. Yeah. I mean, literally, if you could convince your brother, you might save his life. Right. I mean, so, I mean there's this yeah. incredible Im- impulse, you know, it's like you're standing on a dock and there's a drowning person and you've got a life life ring in your hand. And you're saying, yeah. I'd like to throw you this life ring. Will you please grab it? And they're like, that's not a life ring. That's a brick. Yeah, yeah. And you're saying, no, it's not a brick. It's a life ring. <laughs> it's, it's, I guess it's the, the challenge is that they've got all these other voices that are yelling at them. And I'm not talking about, you know, schizophrenic voices inside their head. I'm talking the real, uh, you know, uh, whether it's well, Russian trolls or whether it's the guy next door. Go ahead. Well, I mean, we're all in our own bubble, and he's yeah. reflecting his bubble. It's just a sad time. And in this particular case, in this time in our country, it affects the health of the entire country and even the world. Well, this is the reason why Republicans are pushing this thing. And I think it's the reason why Fox News is pushing the idea that you shouldn't get vaccinated. Just go out there and get sick, because the more the longer they can drag this this epidemic out, this pandemic out, the longer the economy will be in trouble, the longer politics, you know, basically Joe Biden gets the blame for all of it. As in Villa Park. Hey, as what's up? I have this bumper sticker on my car and I've had it for years, even before President Obama was president, because I saw what was happening, and the sticker says, turn off Fox. Yeah. Bad news for America. And and that is so true. That's, I don't know how those people do that, Tom. What kind of people do that? They're very well and, paid. Well, I guess so, but, you know, hey. And it, and Fox is promoting white, white supremacy, and I'm guessing probably pretty much everybody over at Fox News is a white supremacist or at least willing to tolerate it. Right, right. And I can't see people like you and me doing that, but I guess we have to understand that that happens. But one of the things about Fox News is they are abusing the First Amendment. You you know, if if you have the the right, we know you don't have the right to scream fire in a crowded theater. That's speech, but it's, it's illegal. You could be, you would be prosecuted. Why don't somebody, why don't somebody prosecute Fox News? Because they are killing democracy, but they're killing the people. Yeah. Well, and we no longer have a United States of people. We just have some, some land uh, you know, together. Yeah. You know, this, this state right next to that state. But where's the u- union of the people? Yeah. People are what makes a country. Yeah, I'm with you, Azalee. Thank you. Thanks for the call. Rod in Vernal, Utah. Hey, Rod, what's on your mind today? Hello. I read an article in the Atlantic called Are We Doomed by George Packer? Yeah. Talking about... I read it too. Okay. What can we as individual citizens do to to stop, you know, 
stop this from happening, stop our democracy from collapsing. Stop the fascists from taking over, essentially. I think the single yes. most important thing that we can do is get personally, politically involved. And even during a time of COVID, you can do this. Uh, contact your local county Democratic Party. If you don't have a county Democratic Party or, uh, you know, if, if you're in a city and there's a Democratic Party or the state Democratic Party, but I, I would always start at the lowest level, the smallest level. It depends on where you live. I'm not sure, you know, in Utah, there may be so few that, you know, they're, they're clumped <laughs> together. But I would contact yes, the local Democratic Party and say, how can I help? What can I do? I'm not going to okay. leave my house, but I can participate in Zoom meetings. I can reach out to friends. Um, uh, consider running for a precinct committee person so that you can help write the, the platform for the party and decide who the, who the primary candidate is going to be. That, in my opinion, is the strongest and most powerful thing you can do. And, and here is proof that that is the most powerful thing you can do. This is what Steve Bannon is it recommending people do on the Republican side right now? And he's pounding on that every single day on his pod, or not, you know, regularly on his podcasts. Did it make sense, Rod? Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, it'll be a little different, difficult in Utah. Yeah. Um, no, in there's that. Democrats in Utah, Rod, but, but I, yeah, you know, I get there it. Are, the other there thing, are, but uh, the other thing is, I'm in the, go ahead. I'm in the reddest part of Utah. Yeah. <laughs> so no, I, we're in, we're not only we're we're in oil country where I'm at, so it's a double whammy. Yeah, um, but there there are still things you can do, and then in terms of national participation, there's some great groups out there. Probably the ascendant group right now, the biggest group right now, is Indivisible.org, and I would sign up with them and just get their their uh, their things and and uh, you know follow what they're saying. Um, there's Indi uh, Indivisible.org. Uh, Indivisible.org. Okay. Indivisible. Okay. Yep. There is uh, Progressive Democrats of America, pdamerica.org. Um, there is, maybe it's pdamerica.com. I think it's .org. Um, it is .org. Okay, Sean says yes. There's uh, ourrevolution.com, which is uh, the, uh, the old Bernie Sanders campaign has, you know, kind of reinvented itself as that, uh, our revolution. Um, there's moveon.org. There's, there's a bunch of good groups. There's also a couple of websites where there's a lot of activism going on. The main one is dailycos.com, uh, dailykos.com. It's a blog that Marcos Melitza started like 15, 20 years ago and, and has become a, a major force in, in progressive politics in the United States. I post over there. A lot of other people post there. Um, and, and, and they engage in fundraising and political action on behalf of progressive candidates all around the country. So uh, that, that's my list, Rod. I wish you the very best. Good luck. I mean, <laughs> you're there in Utah. I, you know, I, I guess all I can do is wish you the very best. But it's so great to hear from somebody who wants to get involved. God bless you. And happy holidays. Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
Tom Hartman University Book Club reading today from Screw, The Undeclared War Against the Middle Class and What We Can Do About It. This is from uh, one of the last chapters, Chapter 13. It's titled Setting the Rules of the Game in the subchapter Gaming the System. If government can create conditions that cause a middle class to emerge by implementing fair rules for business, progressive taxation, free public education, the opposite is also true. Government can create a corporatocracy by deregulating business, by cutting taxes on extreme wealth, and by privatizing as much of the commons as possible. Conservatives call this starving the beast. Here's how you starve the beast. You put through tax cuts for the rich, which cuts back the revenues of the federal government to the point that if you got rid of all the social programs, you'd have a balanced budget. No more Social Security, no more spending for education, no more spending for Medicare and Medicaid. Let the government simply keep the armies, prisons, and police. Let's shrink government. That's their philosophy. When you cut all those social programs, you lose the middle class and in its place create a very small wealthy elite and a large underclass of starvation wage workers. You lose democracy and instead create corporatocracy. You change the rules of the game. We the people lose and the feudal lords win. Cons have been winning this particular game of Starve the Beast since Reagan first started seriously playing it in 1981. They've done it in large part by lying to the American people. And they've had to do that because if they told the truth, the majority of Americans would throw them out of office. This is, after all, still a democracy. If the majority of us agree to get rid of Social Security so that only the wealthy can have retirement benefits and the old are left to fend for themselves, so be it. If a guy breaks his neck and can't work and the majority of us decide not to help people who are disabled and as a result he has to beg on the street, well, we can democratically decide, decide to screw him and ourselves. But the conservatives are not having this debate in an open and honest fashion. They're not asking we the people if we want to get rid of, for example, the Head Start program. They could ask, do we want to invest in our youth or not? We know that if we invest in educating the very young, fewer of them will become criminals. It will save us money over the long term. But the majority of us say, no, we would rather pay $50,000 to imprison them later than pay $300 to put them in a head start. Now, if we said that, then that's fine. It's a democracy. But that's not the way the cons are doing it. Instead of explaining why it would be better for Americans to give all their money to the corporate elite, they're giving huge tax cuts to the rich while pretending that the tax cuts benefit all Americans. Instead of arguing that Americans should not expect the right to health care or security in their old age, they are promoting a government crisis by handing to the rich the money we're borrowing from China, Japan, and Korea in the name of our grandkids. They're borrowing so much money from these countries that if they so much as blink, our currency could crash. And that's just what the most ideological of the conservative elite want. They want an economic crisis because they figure that's the only way they can force a cut in spending on social programs. In 2004, they thought that they had starved the beast enough, and they sent Bush out on the campaign trail to advocate getting rid of Social Security, privatizing it, putting it in the hands of Wall Street. But it didn't work. Turns out we the people apparently like Social Security. So the cons went back to starving the beast. Bush instead passed a new series of tax cuts with more to follow. The cons are trying to play the game so that the rich benefit while the rest of us lose out. They get tax cuts, we get program cuts. That's not a free market. That's a market that's being created for the benefit of the rich at the expense of the middle class. The question Americans have faced since the first arguments between Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton in the 1780s was whether the game of business should be played with the primary goal of enriching the few 
or while allowing the few to enrich themselves, enhancing the quality of the life of the many. The cons suggest that if the rich win first, benefits will trickle down to the rest of us. Protecting workers, they say, will produce abnormalities and dislocations from a so-called free market. For example, they suggest that when minimum wages are fixed by government and labor can lawfully bargain to increase wages by increasing scarcity of labor through union actions, the result is an increase in prices, ultimately hurting the working person. But the economists they often cite in this thinking, David Ricardo, disagreed that raising wages first increased prices. He noted, quote, on the contrary, a rise of wages from the circumstance of the laborer being more liberally rewarded or from a difficulty of procuring the necessities on which wages are expended does not, except in some instances, produce the effect of raising price, but has a great effect in lowering profits, end of quote. In other words, all that talk about keeping wages down to keep prices down is a smokescreen. Business owners want to keep wages down to keep profits up. And when wages go down, profits do indeed go up. American wages have been falling steadily since Reagan first reintroduced conservative economics in 1980. And American corporations are generally more profitable than they've been in decades. In part, this is not only because wages are going down within the United States, but also because U.S. level wages are being replaced by India and China level wages through offshoring and outsourcing. But offshoring isn't a problem for American workers, the cons shout. It's the increase in productivity. American businesses need fewer workers because of automation. This is a tragic lie, and it's been bought hook, line, and sinker by most American politicians and even some economists. The book is screwed. Mark in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Mark, what's up? Hey, Tom, I was just wondering if, uh, if you know anything in reference to so what the Constitution tells us about I know the Alien Sedition Act that James Madison uh, proposed or, uh, back then was a lot different than what it was we did. John Adams. Or John, I'm sorry, John Adams. But uh, I'm wondering uh, if, if Mark Meadows and all these people are indicted for treason, I mean, isn't there like a minimum of 20 years that they should be getting? Or what's the, uh, I mean, what's the, what's the, what's the Treason is more like, you know, betraying your country during time of war. Sedition is what you're talking about. And okay. there, there, there is a specific law against sedition. It's called seditious conspiracy. The Alien and Sedition Act that uh, John Adams put into place in 1798 which was the thing that ruptured his relationship with Jefferson. And he used as the basis to put some 30 newspaper publishers in prison for publishing things that he didn't like. That's long gone. That, uh, Jefferson got rid of that in March of 1800, right after he was sworn into office. Well, actually, it, it expired, as I recall, March 4th of 1800, on the day that Jefferson was sworn in. The law was written to expire that day. It passed Congress with one vote in the House and one vote in the, by, by a majority, one vote in the House and Senate. And then, of course, the, the Federalists lost that election. But here's what seditious conspiracy. This is the modern one. This is 18 U.S. Code 2384. It's titled Seditious Conspiracy. And the entire law is one sentence. If two or more persons in any state or territory or in any place subject to the jurisdiction of the United States conspire to overthrow put down or destroy by force the government of the United States or to levy war against them or to oppose by force the authority thereof or, and this is where we really get into January 6th, or by force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States 
or by force to seize, take, or possess any property of the United States contrary to the authority thereof. I would, in this regard, point to the, the Capitol itself or the ballots, the, you know, the uh, Electoral College. Um, then the sentence ends, they shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 20 years or both. So if Meadows and Bannon and these guys are convicted of anything, it should be seditious conspiracy under 18 right. U.S. Code 2384, and they should be looking at 20 years in prison. Well, I wonder if, if you know, you mentioned Merrick Garland's uh, uh, DOJ and that there's still remnants of, uh, of Trump's uh, officials in there. I mean, he needs to just he needs to really go through that and just start firing these people that are that are really hindering what justice is supposed to do. I agree. But I agree. Uh, hopefully we'll see um, seditious uh, conspiracy charges against these people. I hope. There you go. I, mean, I do, too. Mark, thank you very much for the call. Dennis in Riverside, California. Hey, Dennis, what's on your mind? What's on my mind is the way to attack Donald Trump. It hasn't really been tried in any meaningful way. It's just around the edges. But attack him as a fraud. I think that's, that's happening. Weak- <laughs> no, I don't think so. They've tried everything. They've gone the Russian connection, the vulgar language connection, the everything but saying, okay, this guy is a total con man. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, when I was a teenager, I thought... A total fraud has a better chance of success in a way because he doesn't have to connect with reality in any yeah. way. No, I, I'm with you, Dennis. I think that you know when when somebody's characterized as an evil person or a bad person, many folks will wear that, particularly sociopaths, will wear that as a badge of honor. Yes, <laughs> look at how powerful I am. I am Lex Luthor, and Donald Trump yeah. has been reveling in that. But when you say, "Oh, he's just a scam artist. He's just a fraud. He's just a phony." There's really no no way to respond to that, and, and I you know I think that's an excellent point, Dennis. Thank you for calling and making it. I had wanted to share with you a little earlier, and I'll do it here at the at the very end of the show. We're we're uh, down to about the last two minutes. The writing, uh, r i g h t i n g, thewriting.com is a website that you know where the uh, in fact the the guy who runs this has been on our program a number of times. His name is Howard. I forget his last name, and. Every day I get this newsletter and it shows me what the right wing in America is talking about. And there's kind of some good news here. This, uh, the National Review has a headline today, Capitol riots happened because Trump lied. Oh, really? Are they starting to wake up? The headline at Newsmax, I'm begging Trump not to run in 2024. That seems like a good start. On the other hand, if you go over to Fox News, the headline is Liz Cheney is lying to you about January 6th. This is from Tucker Carlson. So the texts that Liz Cheney read about aloud yesterday were a tribute to the people who wrote them. But because she is a liar, Liz Cheney attempted to twist these texts in a proof of some kind of conspiracy. And then over at Newsmax, Tucker Carlson's Putin play mirrors Hitler appeasement. What's going on here? Is, is the right starting to eat their own? Dick Morris. You know Dick Morris, right? He's an old Fox guy. Fox, quote, Fox News' lead host, Tucker Carlson, is behaving like the discredited appeasers of Adolf Hitler in the prelude to World War II. Something's going on. I think a big shakeup is happening in right-wing world. Although only two Republicans voted yesterday to hold Mark Meadows in contempt, I still think a shakeup is happening. We'll uh, continue following this and keep you up to date. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us, and that includes you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. Have a great afternoon. We'll see you tomorrow, same time, same place. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. 
For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 